Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. Managing ourselves is no different than managing anybody else. It's not in control, but we have a lot of influence, right? So it's trying to create an inner life that is congruent with the outer world that we want to create. Because if we're in turmoil on the inside, it's inevitable we're going to recreate that in the organization or in our personal relationships outside of work. It's some level of imperfect peace with one's humanity and imperfection while still striving for greatness is, I think, the core of the work. This is Ari Weinschweig, the co-founder of The Amazing Sigmunds, which is located in Ann Arbor, just outside Detroit. And I'm super excited and grateful spending time with Ari today. Ari is a true maverick that believes that you need to build a business that not only achieves great business results, but also makes significant positive impact on people, community, and the planet. And he's been part of Growing Singerman since he started the business with his co-founder Paul back in 1982 with just a small delicatessen, which they now have grown after 39 years into a community of businesses with an annual sales of more than $55 million and 500 employees. Arian Singerman has been recognized many times for their great work. Uh, but in 2017, Harris was named as the world's top 10 CEOs by Inc. Magazine. Over the years, Ari has also written a range of books and pamphlets, including Singerman's Guide to Good Leading Part 1 to 4. And I can only recommend you to get a copy of that and all the other stuff Ari does. It's really, really great. And you can find that through their website. But more about today. In the preparation for this conversation, it quite quickly became clear there was so much we could dive into. Vision, mission, culture, the power of beliefs in business, leadership, food, and much more. But hence, we are still moving slowly forward from a pandemic nobody wanted, nobody was ready for. We thought it would be relevant to talk about one of the key ingredients to greatness and progress, the ability to manage ourselves and helping others to do so. Because we sometimes forget that we, if we want to build something great, it starts and ends with our ability to manage ourselves. So today we'll be talking about life and leadership learnings from 2020. Before you tune in, please participate in our survey we are doing together with our partner BizSimply. Our aim is to understand how leaders in the industry are transforming their organization to deliver the experience both employees and customers are demanding. To say thank you for participating, you will not only get a copy of the final book, but you also invite you to our launch event. Link in the show notes. But now, please grab coffee, notebook, and let's get started working on ourselves. A warm welcome to you, Ari, and thank you for, for sharing your time with us today. I'm honored to do it, man. It's a, it's a very uh, English day here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Very rainy and 
Chili. Oh, well, well, we'll share that because I sit here in Brighton in the UK and it's the same. And it's been that for, for the last couple of weeks. We Maybe we already had our summer here. Uh, but but I wanted to say it's a huge honor to have you on the show. And for people listening into the show and follow the newsletter would know that I've talked about Singerman's and your work before. Uh, and uh, you have uh, over the years, uh, especially when I think I, I actually accidentally was reading in and out of the book, uh, Small Giants. Uh, I was reading Small Giants because there was a section with Danny Meyer in. And then suddenly there's this other hospitality business called the Singerman's. Uh, and that was the first time I met you. And I've always talked to people who said, you should check this out. This is quite incredible what they're going on there. And then somehow in the pandemic, I was pushed back into your arms and I got hold of all your books and started reading them. And I thought that, you know, I, we, we needed to have a chat. You've become one of those angers and heroes in my life. And, and I've become quite obsessive about it, some people say, because I talk about you need to check out these guys all the time. So, but we, we were talking a bit back and forward because there's so much we couldn't be talking about. And uh, I think we agreed on like one of the biggest, you know, most important skills right now as a leader is the ability to manage yourself. It always is, but especially in these time we're in right now. And it fitted really well come in to the pamphlet you've been writing last year, end of last year in December, uh, Life and Leadership Learnings from 2020. So, uh, I would like just to start out a bit uh, with you, Ari, because you're also a business owner, uh, fa- co-founder of a business and been in business for almost 40 years now. I think it's 39 years. Yeah. Yep. Um, how do you feel inside right now after this? You know, I don't even know what I should call it. A storm. It's not even a storm. It's like something, you know, we have, can't describe yet. I've come to think of it as an earthquake because, as as you know from the e-news, I've been doing a lot of work around thinking about organizations as ecosystems, and uh, the metaphor has become quite extensive. But when the pandemic hit, I was a little bit stumped for how to process what the pandemic was in the ecosystem. But I, I sort of settled on earthquake because... Although in Brighton and in Michigan, it doesn't happen. We, we know that when earthquakes hit, like in San Francisco or in Sicily or places that it's a common issue, uh, you know, you can have one building on one side of the street that's fine. And the one right on the other side, it completely collapses. Uh, people disappear into holes in the ground. And what was totally fine on Monday afternoon by Tuesday morning can be a disaster. And that's kind of what happens. So some businesses like mail order businesses uh, did very well. Uh, Pizza delivery in the U.S. at least did very well. Uh, Other businesses uh, like restaurants and and music venues uh, did, you know, were very, very, or catering venues, very, very much challenged. Uh, so anyway, I settled on pandemic uh, as earthquake, but I, I'm doing fine. I mean, I, I think the first six weeks, four weeks were pretty crazy. We're, uh, I would have said we were in pretty good shape, you know, not like we're billionaires or anything, but we had fairly positive cash flows and uh, certainly had debt, uh, as many people listening, I'm sure do, but it was seemingly manageable, but I don't think any of us planned to have sales drop by 75% in one day. <laughs> so so it was a little bit of like, okay, when I do the, I'm not an MBA, but when I do the math uh, and how much we owe versus how much we have, it's there's more that we owe. So uh, we're in trouble. But once we sort of made it through that first four or five weeks, and we didn't end up needing it, but we backed up uh, if we if we had needed it in an emergency. Uh, some people who were willing to lend us cash, 
uh, to get through, uh, et cetera, then it's just sort of settled into kind of stressful, but it's the food business. It's always stressful. It's, it's interesting you're, you're taking that view uh, and there's a bit of the, the optimist, uh, I guess, as well, because also it's always challenging in, in a food business, especially when we talk cash flow. Uh, I can't remember in, in the decades I've been involved, it's never been challenging and has always been the next big thing around the corner. <laughs> Coming into what, what kind of lessons have this learned you? Because we all are taking lessons out of what, what is your as an individual leadership and life lessons that's, you know, the pandemic, you know, maybe your top three that really have left with you. I think in a, in a funny way, I guess the biggest things for me are that what we were already doing works. <laughs> I mean, somebody asked me this the other day. I mean, there's clearly things that we have changed our Zing train our training business put the training classes online so in your case people in the UK uh, or in Europe or whatever can access them without flying over uh, bake our baking school for home bakers has done the same uh, we've added more outdoor eating I mean so those are some concrete things but I, honestly they're pretty tactical and then clearly like everybody we went through all the uh, appropriate uh, diligent due diligence around health requirements. So masking, social distancing, and all of those things as we tried, as everybody did to uh, follow the ups and downs that my uh, friend Ashling Rogerson from the Fumbly Cafe in Dublin calls riding the Corona coaster. We certainly had that. That said, uh, I, I, I really, I would suggest the bigger things were just holding course. I mean, open book in no particular order, open book management so people know what the finances are is always meaningful and in a crisis it's really meaningful because people can understand at, at every level pretty much what cash flow situation is so that is huge uh visioning uh the visioning work that we do that maybe we'll talk more about but i mean it's really a mindset of approaching the future for going in in the context of going after what you believe in and what you uh what you want to pursue and what success will look like, feel like, and in our world tastes like, as opposed to most of the world, which is focused on what's wrong and who's causing the problem. So that's a huge help. Uh, teaching people how to do systems design uh, is is a huge help because when we had a switch over from, uh, you know, 10 or, <clears throat> 10 or 20 or 25% carry out to 100% carry out, it, it wasn't just the question of where, which door the food went out. It was how do you alter the systems in order to be able to do that? Uh, giving great service experiences. Yes, the tactical, technical things are different in a pandemic, but the spirit of it and the intent and the creative components of it are really no different. Uh, teaching people uh, about giving, delivering a great experience as per our mission statement, really no different. So, I mean, I could go on and on down the list, you know, teaching people to manage energy, uh, et cetera. And then some things that aren't that glamorous and don't really get talked about a lot, but something that we've been doing for years is just having well-run meetings with facilitation and agendas. Well, when you when you don't know how to do that and, and the chaos comes, it's very difficult to get organized because all of our emotions are running high. We're all triggered. Fear is higher than ever. Uh, and so having the ability to sit through a meeting and have a facilitator, even if it's somebody who works here but knows how to facilitate it was huge. Uh, staying focused on the positive, understanding beliefs. I mean, all these things really made a big difference. And I, I've kind of come to believe that healthier uh, organizations have healthier immune systems, let's say, in the context of coronavirus. So uh, if you get sick, 
you you have a better shot. It's not guaranteed, but you have a better shot at having resilience. And I think that seems to be proving true. I'm not going to say it's actually over because you and I have both been in this long enough to know anything could happen tomorrow. But at least it seems like we're going in the right direction. Yeah. Oh, it is so interesting in a way that you have got that confirmation that actually what you already did, the muscles you're already training, if we should stay with, stay with the body or the immune system you're feeding, the gut was already working uh, because I guess you were actually not knowing, as you say, before you're on the other side, but already, you know, it's interesting when you said meetings um, because I had so many conversation with other leaders about, I said, well, the first thing you need to do is reinforce, you know, great conversations. And you need to find out how you have great conversation. If you don't have a system for that, you really need to get that. And uh, because now, it's more important because people are in panic and fear. And that's your job as the leader to create that framework. And I, and I think you also talk about frameworks with the freedom within frameworks, like the importance of having these frameworks, uh, uh, especially when the ship comes out of course, as it's been. So it's so interesting that you confirmed that all the things you're doing, you're writing about in your books, exactly been helping you. You're not because you haven't had challenges, but exactly helped you and, and, and your colleagues to get through it both mentally and, and from a business point of view. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I mean, it's, we could use a hundred metaphors. I mean, in the same in sports, it's like when you, when a team uh, does kind of well, and then they get in the playoffs, it's not the time to start learning new skills. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's the other way you, you practice them all during the season so that when you get in the playoffs, uh, you're able to, to, to respond to situations without having to do a lot of conscious thinking about it the habits, the routines, uh, the neuroplasticity in our brain has already been shaped so that people know what to do. And I, I think that this is what we've experienced uh, here. As you said, we've been here 39 years. So we've been through 9-11, uh, which was more of an issue in the U.S. than in the U.K. But we we certainly were challenged then. Uh, the 2000, whatever it was, 9 uh, uh economic collapse. I mean, so we've been through these things before. And I, I think that's certainly one of the things, uh, as you mentioned, the new pamphlet, uh, which is about 2020 called Working Through Hard Times. I mean, one of the pieces that I realized was important is to go back, uh, what we call vision back. So to look at one's life, both individually and collectively as an organization, and to try to pull out the pieces, where have you been through difficult times? Because we all have. Uh, how did we get through them? Because we we have gotten through them by definition. We're here still, and and then what what are those tools that that can help us to go forward through the challenging times, and also to help build hope and confidence and positive belief in the future? Because if we don't have those, then all the tools in the world probably won't be enough. I saw recently, uh, as I was preparing for this conversation, you had a new natural law number thirteen. And I, I don't know if that come out of the, the pandemic. It's a lot of control, it says. What, where, where did the thinking behind that come from? Because I actually agree when I read it. I totally agree with you. There's nothing in principle that's changed. We're always uh, out of control, but we are seeking. We're always fighting to get control. And we, uh, we are sold promises or products that, that will give us control. But it's all a lie. Yeah, Yep, absolutely. And uh, it didn't it did not come out of the pandemic. Actually, the pandemic just for people who still didn't believe me, <laughs> I think they might still not because I've learned you can't make anybody change their beliefs. But uh, no, I realized it a long time ago. I mean, it's 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 uh, there's a lot of disconnects. 
in the in the in the language that we use from the way the world really works right and and the language that we use uh manifests uh how we think uh and so when we're we're getting trained to believe that there should be control because the term control is used from the time where children get control of yourself uh get that kid under control and then as we grow up uh you know, even in business, even in the progressive business world, there's still a lot of stuff. Focus on what you can control. Let's get these costs under control. And and really, it's never under control. I mean, I and this what I started to, to realize is we, we don't control anything. Uh, and if you doubted it, I think the pandemic would would seal the deal. <laughs> but but I when I teach uh, managing ourselves, which I know we're going to probably talk about uh, today together. I always ask uh, people in the room, you know, who here has been engaged in doing something that even while you were still in the act of doing it, you knew it was not a good idea, but you went ahead and did it anyway. Who's had that experience? And everybody raises their hand and laughs. We've all done it. So, and I'm like, okay, if you can't even control yourself (laughs) to stop yourself from doing what you already know is not a good idea, what gave you the illusion that you could control the employee's relationship with their significant other, the weather, the cost of beef. I mean, there's just so many things going on. And so really what we have are varying degrees of influence. And once I understood that, it it reduced my stress level a lot. Because if we work with the illusion that we, in quotes, should have control, we're failing constantly. And then we, we double down by trying to control more, which is actually unnatural and creates even more problems. So I'm, I'm not saying that we don't have influence because we clearly do, but uh, understanding that influence is not the same as control. I mean, I whatever metaphor you want to use, I mean, I live, my, my girlfriend's a farmer. I mean, she doesn't have control, you know, so why would we have control of human beings? It doesn't make sense really when you think it through. Yeah, and it's super interesting. Uh, uh, I think I've learned it as I got more gray hair. I think that's that uh where i started just to accept that you know sometimes it's just out of my hands and the universe will will take care of it and it's and and i think it i guess it's also because you experience things and go through it but i think it's a really good thing to learn and i think i learned it from a a very good partner i had in business to said michael i know we know where we're going to get we have a vision for it but we can't control what people throw on the road as we go down there we just need to deal with it and that was the first time I learned, and I, and I know it's so hard. So I really, really, if people haven't read that, uh, read your newsletter, they should sign up and go and read that, especially right now. There's some great learnings in there. But but diving into uh, managing ourselves, Ari, um, what is your definition of managing yourself? Because there's, there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of self-help out there. Yeah, well, I don't know what the right term is, but I mean, I... I... So the the Managing Ourselves book is part three in the series. The first one is about building a great business. The second one is about leadership. Uh, the third was Managing Ourselves. And the fourth uh, is about beliefs, which we could get to later. And I'm starting to work on part five, uh, which I think is going to be about the organizational ecosystem. But anyway, when part three came out about managing ourselves, a lot of people said, well, 
shouldn't you have written this first? And it's like, well, maybe, but I didn't. <laughs> and, and then the response would be like, well, shouldn't everybody know this before they get into business? And I said, yeah, of course we should. But none of us are interested in it until we screw up enough stuff in our lives that we realize we need to do the inner work in order to make the rest of our work work effectively. So managing ourselves is no different than managing anybody else. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's not in control, but we have a lot of influence, right? So uh, it's, it's trying to create an inner life that is congruent with the outer world that we want to create. Um, because if we're in turmoil, unconstructive turmoil, uh, angry turmoil on the inside, it, it's, I've come to realize it's inevitable we're going to recreate that in the organization or in our personal relationships outside of work. So it's, it's just learning. Uh, it sounds simple, but it's years of work. As my uh, very wise therapist said many, many years, 30-something years ago, like, you know, one day he just said, it's really too bad you can't make peace with yourself. And then I argued with him, <laughs> unwittingly proving his point. Uh and, and it was really true. I mean, it's just being at, at some level of imperfect peace with one's humanity and imperfection while still striving for greatness is, I, I think, is the core of the work. And as I wrote in the book, I mean, in, in my view, it's probably the hardest part of the work. What would you say is the top reasons to really double down on, you know, developing, managing yourself? Well, I don't know what the top one is. I mean, but one of, one of the ones that for me is just realizing that the organization uh, that we're leading, whether it's a restaurant, a hotel or something that's not in hospitality, I mean, that we're is, is basically a mirror of what we have going on in our heads. Uh, and, and so what we focus on, what we believe in, what we our, our neuroses will eventually be manifested into the organization. Now we can get around that to some degree or move past that to some degree by having diversity in the organization. So uh, because different people, of course, have different strengths and different weaknesses and different areas of focus and different blind spots. So uh, just from my own experience, I mean, my partner, Paul Saginaw, we get along well. We have a lot of shared values and vision, but we have very different day-to-day -day approaches to the world. So there's some things that he, he goes crazy about, and I don't even notice them, and vice versa, right? So I think diversity can, in, 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 in all aspects can help to mitigate some of the, the whatever damage or weakness that we cause from our own inner experience. But So that that's a really big one. Uh, I, I think it, if we all... I assume, I believe, all of us want to live the life that we want to live. I mean, we want to create something meaningful and special, and that's different to each of us, but we still want to create something meaningful and special. And so if we're if we're not able to manage ourselves well, the odds of getting to that or even knowing what it is are pretty low. Uh, and then I, I just would suggest it's it all starts with us. I mean, it's, it's my energy, uh, my beliefs, my hope level, it's its all manifesting and impacting the rest of the organization. So rather than being frustrated that frontline people are, are not giving a great guest experience uh, when, when customers come in, the place to start is what's my energy when I deal with the staff member? How do I greet them? 
how am I dealing with my own anxiety? And, and if I'm dumping my anxiety on the staff member, it's not rocket science to figure out they're going to just turn around and dump it where it's safe on the customer. What about if we go into, we started at the pandemic in a situation like with such a, you know, amount of chaos, especially in the beginning, how, how do you actually manage and work on yourself? Because a lot of people probably say, and I hear this a lot, I don't have the time, I don't know where to start. How do you deal with this? Because because we just said in the beginning, this is this is important now, really to double down here. If you haven't already invested, you know, invest more, invest a double what you did pre-pandemic. Uh, that's what I've been saying to people. But how do you do that? Well, I wrote an essay on time management that's in the book. Uh, I, I think, you know, I believe that it's deciding what's important, right? So uh, and, and then also to our earlier conversation, I mean, practices and routines and beliefs that have been in place for a long time, if they're working, it's a lot easier to get through the difficult times. So one of the questions I started getting from friends, and I wrote about this in the Working Through Hard Times pamphlet, you know, in the, I don't know, let's see, May of last year, so about two months in, and people would be like, well, what are you doing to take care of yourself? And I was like, uh not really doing anything different than I do all the rest of the time. Uh, I journal every morning. Uh, I did it today. I wrote about that in the pamphlet. I, uh, I run every day, usually in the afternoon, to clear my mind to go back and work the dinner rush. And then we cook dinner in some crazy form late in the evening. We eat like Spaniards uh, at about 11 o'clock because I don't get home from work till like 930 Uh but those three things provide anchors for me throughout the day uh, to just keep connection with myself, keep uh, myself moderately grounded and not freak out. And then, you know, there's a whole range of other techniques that uh, I rely on. Calling friends just to share stress or hear theirs is, is helpful. Uh, getting outside for five minutes. Uh, there's some techniques that I wrote about in the book that are super simple, but things that I made up to help myself. Uh, one of them is I, I like little acronyms that help me remember things. So one is uh, the initials S like Sam, B like boy, A like anarchist. Uh, so SBA stands in my mind for stop, breathe, and appreciate. And I am convinced that in under 60 seconds, the appreciation has to be real, not bullshit. But so if you do those three things in under 60 seconds, you can swing your energy 180 degrees back to where you want it to be. Uh, and, and so simple stuff like that really helps, but if we don't have those techniques and then, like you said, the chaos comes and we're freaking out, uh, we're, we're just, we're just passing all of our own freak out onto the staff who then do worse work, uh, which creates more problems for us. So I would suggest oftentimes people say they don't have time, but it's actually our own, uh, ineffectiveness at self-management that's causing a lot of the things that are leading to us not having time. You talk about in the in the pamphlet you wrote last time. You talk about dealing with overwhelm because I guess uh, could you talk a bit about that? Because I I've talked with a lot of people and still uh, today I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine when it was it was just overwhelm uh, a lot of overwhelm from 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 the conversation and uh, how do we deal with that? Because that's that's a common thread even pre pandemic I would say. Yep, absolutely. It's it's an interesting thing. I mean, again, I'm. I'm uh, not to to exclusion of other things, but I, I have learned to focus on language. And uh, I realized with the uh, the word overwhelm, like there's no shade of gray. <laughs> 
you know, it's just people show up and they're like, I'm overwhelmed. But what they don't say is, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. I could see it coming on the horizon. I mean, there's no, there's no gradual stages at which one could do a self-intervention uh, or divert or get outside and do some breathing or call a friend and relax uh, or do something so that what happens to us is that one day we just decide we're overwhelmed and then we start telling everybody we're overwhelmed. And then when we're telling everybody we're overwhelmed, I would suggest it actually makes it worse. Uh, and, and, and so when people are overwhelmed, uh, I think Bob Dylan said, uh, as a quote in the pamphlet, but people don't, don't do well when they're overwhelmed. I mean, you know, obviously. So it's trying to help people understand that there's, there's, if we can become more sensitive, if we can realize the problem is coming, we can do things early before it becomes a crisis. Whereas most of uh, our society has been trained to let the crisis happen and then try to react, which I would suggest is infinitely more difficult. I mean, it's it's no different than like in the food business and hospitality. If you're not managing your labor cost and then one day your accountant calls and goes, your, your labor cost is 20% higher than it needs to be and then you freak out. It's much easier to look at it week to week and be able to make adjustments so that you don't get into a crisis. You also talk about solitude in your in the pamphlet, which I actually, it's something I practice more the last year, something I was maybe not as good at, but really have found powerful. Can you talk a bit about your journey with that and what it gives you? Yeah, I think uh, in in some ways, as as I said in the pamphlet, it might be a little bit easier for me because I'm very introverted and shy. So I actually am calmer in the context of solitude uh, than I am in groups. But uh, but that said, I mean, I, I it's it's a it's a it's an important piece I would suggest of self management is to be able to spend time with ourselves. Uh, one of the things I've experienced watching other people uh is that when their anxiety gets high they they're they can't they they have a very hard time just sitting with themselves and letting the anxiety be and then they just take it out on other people so they rush over to the manager and start telling them how bad everything is or they talk badly of their peers out on the back dock or whatever the UK equivalent of that might be. Uh, they go home and unload for an hour on their significant other about how terrible everything is. And and it's really like they're actually making it worse because they're putting negative energy out into their own universe, putting negative beliefs, uh, metaphorically, if beliefs are the root system, they're planting weeds in the garden, and then they're mad that they have to spend a lot of time later pulling weeds. So it's really just a lot of it. It's it's easier said than done, but learning uh, to be able to sit uh, with yourself and let it pass. So it's not easy, but I think it's really important to be able to spend a little bit of time alone. And I, I don't have kids, so it makes it a little easier for me too, but still, even if it's 10, 15 minutes, uh, I remember one uh, friend was asking for help around it and she had two little kids at the time. And I was like, look, just sit in the car <laughs> for 10 minutes if you need to, because she lived uh, in this part of the world where it's cold in the winter. And I'm like, 
just stay in the car, like just sit there because you need some, you know, she was going right from work right into the chaos of the home with the kids who don't care about work and want attention. And it's, it's reasonable and understandable, but you need a little time to just be by yourself. Uh, we were talking music before. There's a Australian woman who I don't know, but I like her music. She records under St. Sophia. Uh, her name is Alexander Rosenblum. She said, solitude is a jewel no fortune is able to buy. And I, I really, I, I value it and I try to actually schedule it. And part of why I like running, I'm super slow, but I just go by myself. And it, it's a time really where I'm not, I don't need to talk to anybody. Nobody's giving me advice. There's no interference. It's just me out on my own. I have two small kids and actually, you know, in, in the pandemic where everything suddenly is happening around home, uh, I've actually, you know, I'm, I'm a runner as well, but actually I've, I've found that place in, you know, just going up the road uh, into the, the downs, which is the national parks and just be there just for 10, I just need 10 minutes and then coming back. And then I'm in, in i'm back in the in the room or else i'm not in the room because i have all this noise from work going on so i totally agree with you it's one of the most powerful thing i i've learned myself the last year is that on the other side uh of the metal you talked about negative talk but both sharing it and having it with yourself is that kindness you talk about as well and dignity dignity in in the same uh part of this conversation that how important it is to have kindness to yourself and others but also have dignity yep well this is one of the uh, so one of the interesting uh, anarchist beliefs that has helped me a lot is the the understanding that the means that we use i.e the actions we take every day or the way we behave or in this case the way we think even needs to be congruent with the ends that we would like to achieve the way we work needs to be congruent with what we want to achieve. So this, an, an example of where this do, isn't happening is when, when a manager yells at the staff member for giving bad service, right? So we're, 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 we're essentially using verbal violence to ask for a peaceful, positive interaction. It, it's never going to work. So this is really, if we want to create in the future in our vision uh, whether it's written down or not, if we want to create an organization or a life that's filled with dignity and kindness, we need to start now. Uh, and it does begin with us. And I just, uh, the dignity piece came up for me. I mean, clearly the, in the U.S. it wasn't just a difficult year around the pandemic, but uh, politics was probably at one of its worst uh, points in the history of the country. Uh, you have an explosion of racism uh, racial violence around race, which is not a new issue. It's centuries of, of, of problems manifesting again, uh, as it does almost every day somewhere or literally every day. But anyway, so you have all these other things layered on top of the pressures of the pandemic. And there was a lot of talk over the course of last summer in the news, whatever, like people need to relearn civility. And I kept thinking, I mean, civility is better than antipathy. It's better to be like not yelling at somebody than yelling at somebody. But it's so neutral, really. Like, I mean, it's 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 sort of like achieving a ceasefire with people. It's uh, it's it's better than nothing, but and it's better than war. But it isn't really a positive achievement. And I, I started to think more about it, and dignity seemed like a much more positive, uh, affirming way to approach things. And that 
I realize the obvious. I mean, if I just choose to treat every human being and every animal and nature with dignity, it's hard to really go wrong. Uh, and, and so starting to ask people uh, who work here to just have that in their mind, like, did you treat that person with dignity? Because everybody's different, right? So as an introvert, I don't want people coming over to my house unannounced. Uh, it's, it's not helpful, but then there's people who are extroverts that want a lot of attention and they want a hug and they want, you know, they, they want a lot of joviality. And then there's other people want to be left alone. So dignity means, uh, in, in many fat, uh, in every element of our lives, it means starting to understand and be sensitive to who other people are and how they want to be engaged in the world and then treating them in a way that they want to be treated. It's super interesting. It's also about you saying a bit like also stop up before you react in a way or before you engage with the company, actually start up and think about who I'm actually talking with and what are the basic needs, especially it's quite interesting with the introvert extrovert analogy that really think about that, you know, some, some people, you know, extrovert will just sometimes, you know, run through the wall without thinking about how much damage they're doing or disrespectful they are in that situation because they, they are seeking their own energy they need for contact where other people don't want contact. And it's so interesting what you're saying there. What what about the, you know, walking through the pandemic? It sounds like you you know, your, your own personal training as a business owner going into it and with the business that, it's been quite stable, but is there anything you had left behind in the pandemic said, okay, I'll leave that behind identity, a mindset, anything, a behavior you thought that, you know what, this is the time I say goodbye to that. Some people have said, I'm going to be more healthy, running more, I'm going to take care, more care of myself. Have you left anything behind in the pandemic? Probably, but not that I can think of. I mean, I, I, I've already been attempting imperfectly to live the life the way I want to live it. So and I, I know it's been a common statement, at least here in the U.S. I mean, everything's going to be different after the pandemic. I don't really buy that. Uh, I, I mean, I lived through 9-11 and everything was not different. All that was really different was uh, airport lines got longer. And uh, in the U.S., there was a lot more antipathy towards people of uh, Middle Eastern or Muslim background, which you know, maybe is still present, but beyond that, I don't think really a whole lot changed. So I think some things will change. I mean, clearly Zoom or whatever uh, platform we're on, you and I are on right now, those things have advanced technologically, but uh, I've learned enough about, about life and beliefs. I mean, if people don't change their beliefs, the, the changes won't stick. And so, you know, people say, I'm going to be more sensitive. I'm going to pay more attention to my kids. And I think it's awesome if they choose to do that. But the reality is, if they don't really do the inner work that you were alluding to before, they're just going to slide right back into the other. It's no different than somebody who says, I'm going to go on a diet and lose, uh, you know, whatever you would say over there, 10 kilos, uh, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to happen unless we envision a life for ourselves of which this weight loss or the kinder, uh, gentler human presence is if, if that's a part of the vision that you're bonded into and you're ready to do the work to get there, it can happen. But if it's just something that's like, I really should do this, it's really an externalized voice uh, that's not really going to stick with us and it's not going to work. You're touching on it again. You started out with as well. You're talking about, you know, one of the key principles for, for a great life uh, and a great business is have a clear, attractive vision of where you are heading. 
can you talk a bit about like why that is so important like not just in in this current situation but in general and why you are using that as a key pillar of exactly the fundamentals of Singerman's uh, success you talk about in the book that you actually know where you're going and what it's going to look like. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I, I think it's just true. I mean, as you saw in part one of the book, I wrote an essay called Nat- 12 Natural Laws of Business. It's the first one on the list. If we don't know where we're going, the odds of getting where we want to be are low. Like it could happen, but the odds are low. So uh, certain, and I'm not saying good things can't happen without a vision. Clearly it did for me. I had no intent of going into the food business or even being in business. Uh, I just took a job as a dishwasher after studying Russian history uh, at the university and not wanting to move back home. That said, it is my belief that anybody who's living a great life, and whether that's a parent or whether that's running a restaurant or a hotel or an academic program at the local university, if they're doing something really amazing, they have envisioned in their head what they want to create. Right. And so the visioning process that we use, uh, which we didn't really invent, we adapted it from work that was done by a guy named Ron Lippett here at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in the late 50s, 60s, 70s. And then we learned it through another gentleman, Stash Kazmierski, uh, who passed away, I think, five years ago, sadly. But uh, they really taught this to us and we've adapted it a little bit, adjusted a little bit. But essentially, it's a process of getting clear from the heart what the future is that you want to create uh, so this is not a business school outside in exercise and what's the market trends and what's the best way to make a lot of money or what does your mother want you to do uh, this is really about in our heart and our soul and our spirit what do we want to create right there's no right answer i mean i uh, i'm thinking about in uh, dublin uh, there's a a uh, nice couple that has a little, I don't know, cafe, it's a tiny cafe restaurant, uh, Assassin's Custard, I think it's called. They have, I think, no employees, maybe 12 seats. Uh, they work. It's very limited hours. I'm sure they don't make a lot of money. The food is terrific. It's a vision. That's what they want to create. I mean, it's not better or worse than somebody who wants to open 100 units of the same thing. The key is, is it aligned with who you are? And is, and is it congruous with uh, the way you want to live, right? So we write visions for everything here. Uh, we rolled out our 2032 vision, uh, which we worked on for a couple of years and we're supposed to roll out in March of 2020 formally, even though most people here had seen some version of it. Uh, clearly that didn't happen. We rolled it out formally in January of 2021. I'm happy to send it to whoever's interested. And then I've written a lot about this process, but. I can't stress enough. I mean, it's really coming at it from the inside out, not from the outside in. So it's not what you think you should do or what you could do. It's what you want to do. And it's the the typical business school version of vision is a little three, four line statement. I've never understood the difference between those and mission statements. Maybe I'm not wise enough to understand, but this is a much more detailed description of what success looks like, feels like. So it could say, roughly the size of the organization you want to create. I mean, uh, if you're doing a million in the U.S. dollars in sales is radically different than if you're doing 10 million or 100 million. They're all okay, but it's a different job that we have, right? How the people who work in your organization feel, hugely important. How you feel, uh, I'm trying to work more. I'm going to run out of time and I got a lot to do. Other people are trying to work less. 
they're both okay. It's just trying to see into your spirit and to get clarity on what you want to create and then being able to share that with others. So when we opened the deli in 1982, it was just me and Paul and two employees. And we had a vision in our head as everybody listening probably had at some point, um, you know, whatever uh, business you can look at. I mean, if you're in, in the UK, you can go into the uh, corner shop and buy some Cadbury chocolate or whatever. I'm not saying it's great chocolate, but Mr. Cadbury had a vision, whatever it was, 150 years ago of what he wanted to create. And now the question is, is there a vision for Cadbury now? I hope nobody's listening uh, from there, but uh, they're probably not a hospitality maverick. But anyway, uh, uh, it's not a judgment of, of that organization. It's just we, we complete the original vision we built the cathedral, but then, the, the, as I say, the original cathedral got built, but the workmen keep coming. <laughs> and so they just start adding on things because they read an article that said it's a good idea to have this, or we could do this, or the competitor did that. And we end up, instead of with elegance and beauty, we end up with a hodgepodge of disconnected projects that not, any of them on their own aren't really evil, but they don't create the elegance and, and beauty that we want to create. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting with uh, your vision work is also it works on a personal level as well. It's not just yeah, a, a, business, a, a business vision. And I think one of the things I've learned uh, working on vision myself, both personally and with my business and my colleagues, is that it's the process that you go through here and actually where you're going to agree on how it's going to look that's so powerful. And it's not so much about what you write down. It's not, as you said, it's not about the four lines. It's about probably pages of transcribe of these conversations and hours of meetings, uh, depending on the size of your organization, of course, and, and, and who you want to involve in your personal. Because I have three trusted people I involve in my personal uh, visions and they challenge me and say is is that stretching it too much or is that not ambitious enough uh, so i think that's very important in, in when we talk about vision as well i know you write about that in your stuff as well yeah yeah it's it's super important and it, it's 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 essentially the story of your life told from the future so uh, marge piercy the poet says we're trying to live as if we are an experiment conducted by the future yeah and I, I love that. Uh, uh, Marianne Moore, uh, the poet, says it's, she doesn't say it about visioning, but she says it about poetry. But I think it's true about visions, as she says they're real toads in imaginary gardens. So real toads in imaginary gardens, just the thought of it. So it's, it's very real, yet it hasn't happened yet. And so this is really uh, about creating that story of our life, because once we're clear on where we're going, it's just so much easier to be able to go after it in a positive and productive way. People can help you better. Otherwise, they give you advice, which is essentially to go after the vision they have for your life, which may not be aligned with yours. It's much easier to make decisions. If we know where we're going, we can allocate our time, our resources, et cetera, more effectively. And it's it's pretty life-changing. It's not how I grew up at all, but it's changed my life and our organization without question. If uh, if you're interested, I would definitely recommend people to either, you know, uh, get part one or get the, the pamphlet around visionary, visioning, uh, which is very powerful uh, learnings in there. You talk about in, uh, in the book, part three, managing ourselves. you also talk about free choice, which I actually think is very important. Something I've learned as I set out doing my own businesses as well 
that uh, when I was complaining to my old mentor, uh, there's a 75 years old, very experienced Chris, if you're listening in, I'm very grateful for having you in my life. And you said, but it's your choice, Michael. You've chosen to do this. And, and, and when I read that in the book, I thought, wow, yeah, it's just such a reminder that everything we do is a free choice. Can you talk a bit about that concept and why it's important to understand, especially when you run your own business? Yeah, well, it, Chris was Chris is a wise, a very wise man. Uh, I it took me a long time to realize this, and as I wrote in the essay in the book, it really, really, in a wonderful way, altered my energy. Not like it was terrible before, but once I realized that I was, it was all my choice, right? So there's consequences, there's influence. It's not like we're in a vacuum, but I don't need to go deal with difficult customers. It's a choice. I don't need to go to work early. It's a choice. I don't need to stay late. It's a choice. Uh, and and when we start to act like we're being forced to do things, uh, then I'm going to suggest we have the same energy that at least I had. I don't know about you or your kids, but when you're seven and your parents tell you you have to do something, generally it's a little bit of like, ah, oh, fine, I'll do it. Never mind. You know, it's very negative, passive energy. Uh, and, and, and as adults, we learn to hide it a little bit better, but it's still the same energy. And so, you know, if we choose to ignore a complaining customer, which, by the way, most companies in the world do, <laughs> the people listening to this wouldn't be among them by definition, probably. But we can choose to ignore them. There's consequences. All those other companies accept those consequences right? For you and I, we care much more deeply about each interaction. But when I remembered, reminded myself, it's a choice. Take a deep breath. I choose to go engage with this because it gets me to this. And I believe in that vision. I believe in those values. This is what I choose to do, even though it's unpleasant or difficult or emotionally challenging in the moment, then the whole thing goes better. So uh, I choose to be kind to my girlfriend. I choose to uh, to, to, to clean up the floor when the customer's kid dropped the crayons and the uh, napkins and the, the crumbled up the biscuits all over the floor. I choose to do it. I mean, I choose to be in this business. I choose uh, my work. And, and I think for me, or I know for me, when I made the, when I understood that I, I could get out of this eight-year-old mindset of resistance into this, it's not control as we talked about before, but I'm choosing freely with, with influence, with consequences, but I'm choosing freely to go forward. And I understand that somebody who's living in poverty, clearly they have far more pressure in the moment than I do. There's no question. Yet, uh, read Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, or in a, in a more recent context, there's a Hungarian Jewish uh, Holocaust survivor, Edith Eva Eger, E-G-E-R, uh, who wrote an amazing book called The Choice. I mean, you still have choices, and they're talking about choosing their mindset inside the concentration camp. If they can do that, I can certainly choose how to respond on a, a busy Saturday night dinner rush uh, when six people called in sick and the customers, you know, kind of going off about some relatively, in the scheme of the world, minor thing. I can choose to handle it. Uh, there's an English uh, anarchist, actually, from the late 19th, early 20th century, Edward Carpenter, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he said to go through uh, one's mortal days as if one was a slave under compulsion from others is not to live, it's merely to exist. And I think Carpenter was right on. 
uh, we go through our lives acting like our significant others, our bosses, our employees, our bank are making us do things when the truth is we don't need to. I mean, I've met people with almost nothing that are really happy and I'm not recommending having nothing. I'm just saying I've met people literally who have so little, but they, they have an amazing spirit around them and they, they deal with their lives in a much more grounded way. Yeah, and it's uh, so interesting you brought in that that uh, that thing about uh, man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl, uh, because uh, I've shared a bit about that. I, share, I bought the book to a couple of people during the pandemic and said that uh, we are not even close to this. I will not even compare it, but there's so much to learn from, from, from that story, uh, but we'll not dive into that now. Also, sometimes people, we talked a bit about before, you don't have time. You know, I don't have time. I need to go and do all these things, blah, 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 blah. My employees calls me. I need to do these things with the kids. And the, But like you, you said, it's about time management. It's the like, you know, your, your top two hacks that you will say, start doing them and then you pave the road. Because I guess there's a number of time hacks. And I know that from the book you build in to get the time to write, to run a business, to talk with people, to do what you're doing now you're very conscious about what you're doing and you have anchors within your day. Yeah, very. And, and I mean, a couple pieces that I'll say. So one is uh, I, I came to realize as I wrote in the essay in managing ourselves about time management, most of us have what I would suggest are unhealthy relationships with time. Uh, and, and if you have an unhealthy relationship with time, it's not going to go well. Right. And I, most people are mad at time all the time. Uh, they're mad because there isn't enough time. Their time went away that, you know, and I'm like, do, can you think of any other relationship in your life where you're always mad at the other person and it goes well? No, of course they can't. And I was like, in, in the rest of your life, uh, if there's a relationship with another person, at least you have some shot that the other person will alter their behavior to be more aligned with what you would like. But time's not changing. So in this case, the only one that's going to change is us. Right. And so then it's really making peace with time and understanding. Like, I, I mean, I'm like you, I can look at your shelf over your corner. Uh, I, I, every week I order more books and I'm already behind, but it's not bothering me. It's, it's my choice. And I like that problem. Right. Uh, so, so I, I think a lot of it is changing the relationship. A second thing is really looking at time as an investment. I don't mean in money per se, but in creating the life that we want to lead. And so, uh, I have made choices, not religiously, but I really don't go on social media. Not a, not judging other people for doing it, but I don't spend time on it. Uh, I stopped going to parties. I don't like them. I'm an introvert. <laughs> they take up three hours. I'd rather do other stuff. And again, I'm not judging what other people do. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, uh, a big sports fan of all the, the teams in the city. Uh, but then one day I realized like I was spending three hours on something that was creating nothing, usually they would lose. My evening would be ruined because the emotional uh, impact was so negative. And I'm like, I'm just going to stop watching because in three or four hours, look how much I could get done. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I carry books with my backseat of my car is a mess because it's got about 25 books in it, but I always have a book with me. Uh, so I have two I carried in today just in case I had two minutes with nothing to do. One is you probably see it backwards. Peter Block Community, and the other is John O'Donohue's book on beauty. 
Uh, and I've read them both, but I have them in the car and I bring them in. I have underlines and I, if I have five minutes, I'm going to see two or three things that are going to trigger some new thoughts. So it's not a judgment. It's just, we, we can just, we have the freedom to choose what we're going to do with our time. And I also, in the context of the pandemic is to choose to really minimize my news intake because it's so negative and then trying to be in a positive frame when you're at work, but reading at least in the U.S., the political back and forth. I mean, it's horrible, right? And so there's just no way you can be positive if you're expending your energy into negative negative activities. Yeah, one of the ones I say to people all the time, don't watch the news. You can say probably already half an hour a day on that um, because that's, that's a very easy activity to do for, for many because they're consumed with the, the news and missing out. And you will be told what you need to know, as I normally say. Absolutely. And I, I'm not saying don't stay up on what's happening. Clearly, during the pandemic, I mean, it was changing every 48 hours. So we needed to know what the latest uh, guidelines were from the health authorities. But the reality is there's a lot of other news and a lot of other stories that aren't getting told in the news. And where we choose to focus is impacting us. So it's not just watching the news for half an hour. There, there's the negative energy of it that's getting into our brain. And then I, it's not a joke. I mean, even for me who works at this pretty hard, it's probably 20 to 30 minutes to purge my mind of the negativity. If I'm not super on it, I'm going to just pass that negativity back into my ecosystem. And then I pay the price for the negativity because the staff member that I dumped on is in a bad mood and gives bad customer service. And now I need to go deal with a customer complaint. So it's, it's really about the energy management as well as the time management. And I wrote a lot about the energy in part two. Uh, I learned it a lot from my friend, Anise Kavanaugh, A-N-E-S-E, Kavanaugh with a C. And it's a huge, uh, it's a huge benefit. On your incredible journey, uh, if, because you can say this, managing ourselves goes through all the books, in my view, when I've been reading them. Uh, is there any question you still feel that you have answered, unanswered question when it comes to managing ourselves? Well, I, I don't know if it's unanswered question. It's just understanding this is for life. I mean, no matter how much one learns, I still screw it all up every day. I mean, it's in natural law, I wrote uh, number 19 that it's all imperfect. We're imperfect too. And this was a big, you know, raise, having been raised as many people uh, that we know are with this belief that we should attain perfection, in quotes should, uh, is very stressful because we're going to fall short. And so understanding that we can pursue mastery, which is different than perfection, while acknowledging our humanity and our imperfection, that humility, which I wrote a pamphlet on humility, which I learned a lot by doing, uh, that by by understanding that we can pursue greatness but still be imperfect is so much more of a peaceful place to be rather than blaming others for our shortfall or blaming ourselves or both, which goes nowhere, right? And so I, I think for it's for life. I mean, I will always... Uh, have these same problems that I have now. It's just they can I can minimize the impact. Uh, Peter Block, uh, who we just were looking at his book, uh, jokingly says, I, I got the same performance review from all three of my wives. You know, so I, I mean, we're not going to become new people. Like I, 
you know, the, the behaviors and the beliefs that were, I learned as a young child are still in me, right? It's difficult for me to deal with conflict. It will always be difficult for me to deal with conflict. It's just I can learn to manage it more effectively going forward. Um, would you say in that connection as well that, you know, lots of people are trying to redefine success after pandemic? There's been a lot of talking about, do we need actually to, to, that's actually, you know, you talk about belief as well. Is our belief around success in general, in society, in business, is that what we need to change actually to live better lives, you think? Well, it's one piece. I mean, I, I do like the ecosystem metaphor, uh, which I, as you've seen, I've been writing more and more about because it's not one thing. This is another element of belief that I learned from my studies of anarchism is to stop looking for the most important thing, right? Most of society in the West, uh, UK and US have been, tr we've been trained to think hierarchically. It comes out of the industrial revolution and you know, what's the number one thing? What's the most important thing? What's the key? You know, and it's like, they're all important. And so on a farm, like there's not a most important, like you could have great soil, but do a terrible job of managing the farm. You could be super diligent about your, you know, pro appropriate watering, but if the soil's unhealthy, it's not going to work. You could do everything right, but there's no sun. It's difficult. You know, so I mean, all of these things are important. And in the organizational ecosystem, it's it's much the same. We need to do all of it well. That said, uh, the beliefs, as I metaphorically look at it in that model, are the root system. So if we want positives, we got to start with positive beliefs. If we want flowers, we got to plant flowers. <laughs> if we want beautiful heirloom tomatoes, we, that's what we need to plant. If we plant weeds, we're going to get weeds. And so uh, I, I think for me, all years ago, I changed my beliefs or at least adjusted my beliefs around what success means. But yes, if you are operating with these socially imposed uh, norms of money and fame, uh, I don't mean those are necessarily evil. And if you truly want them, then by all means, pursue them. But if you're pursuing them because you believe that's what you're supposed to pursue or because your friends do it or the news tells you that's great, it's a hollow pursuit uh, in the same way that whatever, becoming the person your parents wanted you to be, but you didn't want to be is not going to go well. Marrying somebody that your family told you to marry, but you didn't want to marry is not going to go well. I mean, you, we need to be true to who we are and to create a life that's true to who we are. Yeah, uh, super interesting because, uh, you know, it's, it's probably that uh, you know, one of the big things I see is that it's the money and profit thing that we need probably to change around. If lots of people talk about saving the planet and communities now, but we probably need to look different and money is not the only success parameter, as you say. Uh, and uh, and I think that's really interesting as well what you said there about that is that exactly an ecosystem it's not that's not one thing as the whole industrial revolution have thought about how you do things run organization live lives and so on and it's super interesting if you follow in the ecosystem let's say money is the is you know whatever new mi minerals I mean it's great but if all you have is minerals it's not going to work. <laughs> Yeah, same like if the money was the only vitamins you were you were taking, that will not will not help you. You both need a D, E, and C, and A. We know. Beside your your own books, if you have to give a book away, which book would that be? Nine out of ten times, you had a couple of books. Well, I don't know nine out of ten, but I have these two awesome ones right next to me. <laughs> uh, so John O'Donohue's work is awesome. Peter Block's work is fabulous. Uh, Peter Kestenbaum, K O E S T E N B A U M. Fabulous, not the easiest read, but really wonderful. 
I just read Bell Hooks' book on love, which is fabulous. We have a whole section in our 2032 vision about uh, love, and I've been very inspired by that. Julia Cameron's book that I quoted in part three, uh, Managing Ourselves uh, the Artist's Way. Brenda Uland, U-E-L-A-N-D, uh, wrote a book in 1937 called If You Want to Write. So those, those all come to my mind, and I'm actually reading, uh, just finished reading uh, another Irishman, uh, Gareth Higgins. Uh, lives, uh, he's from uh, Northern Ireland, but now lives in North Carolina. Uh, and his most recent book, How Not to Be Afraid, is fantastic. Well, there was a number of great books, and we will capture them all and throw them in, in, the, in, in the show notes for people out there. Uh, who are, through your journey, uh, Ari, and that's probably a lot of people that's been influential to you, but who is like your, you know, the most influential people that's been on your journey the last many, many decades of running Singermans and writing your, your books and pamphlets? Well, all the people I just referenced have influenced me. I, I, I try to be influenced in a good way by almost everybody. Um, but certainly, uh, I didn't just reference it in that off-the-cuff list. But uh, people like Emma Goldman, you know, that come from the anarchist tradition, uh, Peter Kropotkin, uh, Marie Bookchin, B-O-O-K-C-H-I-N. Uh, these are all interesting people who've uh, impacted me. I like the work of Ashanti Alston, who's not well known, but was a Black Panther uh, who became uh, an anarchist in prison. Uh, some very interesting uh, work there. I'm reading Robin Kelly's book on the history of uh, African Americans in the U.S. Uh, so there's, there's a ton of great people out there. And I, I think really is just for me is understanding that we can learn from everybody and, and being open to it. And even if it's from behaviors that we're not drawn to or that we don't like there's still things to learn from it and then of course all the people i've been working with so my partner paul saginaw has taught me many things maggie bayless who we started zinc train our training business with in 1994 has taught me and the rest of us a ton about training and all of that's had a huge impact too besides you know we talked a lot about your your writing your courses your, your pamphlets but you're also running a hospitality business yes and, that's uh, the core yeah. That's the core of it. And we haven't even dived in so much in this conversation about this. It's how do you, you, as a hospitality operator, how do you look at the next 12 to 18 months? Because there's loads of challenge. And it seemed like we all have them, no matter where we are in the world. Recruitment challenges, food prices gone up, uh, how we're going to make profit in the new world. We're already struggling, many of us, before the pandemic. How do, how is, what, what, what's going to happen? Well, I don't know what's going to happen. No one knows because it's all out of control. But, uh, you know, again, I'll come back to a couple things. So we have already written our 2032 vision. So we know where we're going over the next 12 years. Uh, we have our, our guiding principles, so our ethical values wrote in 1991. We just came out uh, with, again, it was two years of work, but we just finally put it out on paper. Uh, and I, you saw the e-news I wrote about our statement of beliefs. So this is getting agreement on the beliefs that we will use within the organization uh, for our thinking. So in the, in the cooking world, which is my roots, uh, it's, a, it's agreeing on the quality of ingredients that you're going to use, right? So otherwise, what we have is one, one cook made the tomato soup using terrible commercial tomatoes and the other ones arguing and made it with great heirloom tomatoes and now they're arguing over the quality of the soup. Well, if you don't agree on the ingredients, this recipe is the same, 
right? So it's it's really starting with this is how we're going to think. Asking for help is a sign of strength. Start with positive beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's 34 on the list. But it's really, I believe it will help us. We have a fair bit of alignment already. But if you start with negative beliefs, you're going to get negative outcomes. We don't need to have that argument anymore. So I, I think really if we just stay true to all of that and then adapt uh, as, as the strategic challenges come at us, uh, some of them are the ones you mentioned, market prices. Uh, you know, I listened to your podcast, so I know that everybody in, in the UK is short of staff as we are here. And I know in Australia, I heard the same thing. So it's probably everywhere, but it's going to pass. I mean, we've been through it before. So I think if we stay true to ourselves and then adjust, uh, whether it's adjust pricing, uh, you know, do what we need to do in the moment to get through. And as long as it's ethically aligned and we're not undercutting our own spirit, then we're going to do the right thing. We'll make it work. And so some products might need to go away. Hours might need to be shifted, but those are short-term strategic things. It's like in, we're in Michigan. If it's snowing in the winter, put a coat on. I mean, it's it's a drag, but it is what it is. Let's get through it. It's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, again, it's the optimist uh, that's coming in you there as well. Uh, and you, you just see it as another wave we're going through where Again, if you have the foundation in place, as you you preach, that you you can walk through it. Yeah, the same. It's the same. It's a, you still need to give great service to guests. We still want to treat the staff with dignity. You still need a vision. The product has to be great, and getting the salt right on on a piece of fish is the same. So these are the things that we've always had to do, and we still need to do them. And there's always challenges, and some of the ones are are the ones you mentioned. But I was at Zingerman's Roadhouse sitting out front working on the e-news the other morning and the, someone from the city came over to tell us that the water main had broken at the intersection, which created a whole new set of problems that have nothing to do with pandemics, politics, racism, or anything else. It's just, here we are. So now we have to deal with this. And and this is the reality of all our lives, right? Yeah, 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 you're spot on there. But, but taking that into account and all the things we talked about, Ari, uh, I always ask the last question is about, you know, and you say that it's very difficult to give specific things that will really do it but what would you think that you know from your point of view the top three advice to leaders out there uh, because people can often only remember three things if they're taking three things away from this conversation they should go an action on now to uh, go on that journey of mastery of becoming a great business well I, i'll i'll say without trying to be cynical and sarc- you know that i i because i get interviewed by a lot of students at the university and they always want to know what the top thing is because they've been trained uh, to think hierarchically so i started to respond to them by saying the most important thing i learned is to stop looking for the most important thing uh, so that's one uh, beyond that, I, I think clearly the visioning is huge. If, if you don't know where you're going, uh, as it says in that, Lewis Carroll wrote in Alice in Wonderland, any road will get you there. Uh, and so you're, you're basically in the U.S., you're trying to drive across country in some level, but you have no idea where you're trying to end up. It, every intersection becomes an existential crisis to which there's no right answer. So agreeing with yourself and with your colleagues, partners in the business and staff, et cetera, on where you're going uh, really would be huge. Uh, and and then I, I think really just making sure, I mean, I don't know, in the moment I'll say making sure your belief system is aligned with what you're trying to create because we often have beliefs uh, that are not aligned with what we want to 
what we want to create and it won't work. I mean, it has to be congruent. And so the beliefs that we have need to be congruent with the vision that we have for our lives. The beliefs need to be congruent with the mission that we have, uh, et cetera. And, and I've seen so much incongruity even in our own organization that we're trying to, 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 uh, to work to align. And when it's not in alignment, it's like driving your car when, when it's not in alignment. It keeps pulling to the left. And if you're not careful, you crash. That's that's super advice, Ari. Uh, where where can people find out more about Singerman's your work? Where where's the best place to go? Well, maybe soon they can fly again and they could come visit us. It's a direct flight from London uh, to Detroit, and we're about 25 minutes west of Detroit, so it's an easy way to get here. But in the meantime. Uh, my email is just simply ari at zingermans.com. I'm more than happy to field questions uh, or, or interact with people. I'm going to learn from everybody listening to this. I know knows stuff that I would like to know, so uh, and, and I would benefit from that. Uh, zingermanspress.com, uh, you worked with Jenny Tubbs, who's incredible, can help people overseas to get the books. Uh, and we self-publish them here, so we're kind of off the grid, which is not great for, for the UK because we're not on Amazon, but this is about the congruence. I want to work in a way that's congruent with our beliefs. Uh, we all want local food, but then we buy books through the mega giant, which is like if you're amazing, you know, farm to table restaurant, you don't go to uh, the cheapest supermarket to buy your raw materials. So I don't want to treat books with less deference than I would treat uh, the olive oil or the bread or whatever that we're going to buy. Um, so zingtrain.com is the other one, has all the training courses. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the 16 upsides of the pandemic, there aren't that many, but one of them is that the Zing Train courses are online uh, so people can log in from, uh, you know, Lancashire or uh, Essex or wherever they might be. Great, great, Ari. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom and insights. And uh, I send and all your your teams and uh, your organization and yourself the energy and power you need to keep walking through the uh, the next uh, period of time and whatever that comes ahead of us and i'm sure next time we're going to have a conversation it might could be in uh, in singerman's in ann arbor uh, as the, as the world opens again I, I hope that happens, and uh, I'm honored to be on with you. I mean, you do great work. I listen to some of the interviews that you've already done, and uh, ultimately, we're all in this together. And so uh, the more we can help each other in, in our industry, uh, the better we're all going to do. Ari, thank you so much for your insight and wisdom on how to manage ourselves better. If there's one thing I've learned today is that the power of having a clear and defined vision is key to keep moving forward and living the life we aspire to. If you want to learn more about how to manage yourself, you should also check out episode 62, Leading with Radical Acceptance with Dr. Vicky Barnes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. Together with Be Simply, we are right now conducting a survey with the aim to collect best practice on how leaders in the industry are transforming their organization so they can deliver the experience both employees and customers are demanding. Please participate via the link in the show notes. A big thank you to Be Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at advice at bizsimply.com. 
Also, a big thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to our community and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. Thank you and be maverick.